Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello, I'm Stephen. On this week's New Statesman podcast, I'm joined by Anoush to talk about the demise of the Jeremy Kyle show, the potential demise of Change UK, and the sadly demise resistant Brexit party. I guess kind of the big political story continues to be the run into the European elections, and I guess the kind of, if the polls are to be believed, three aspects the success of the Brexit Party and the Liberal Democrats and the disintegration of the Conservatives and to an even greater extent to change of Change UK. Yeah. You wrote a bit about the Brexit Party and Claire Fox. So yeah, talk to us about about that. Yeah, well, I thought it was an interesting example from one part of the country that sort of sums up what these European elections are like and sort of the tone of our politics that they're representing at the moment. Claire Fox is is the top candidate for the Brexit party in the Northwest. And um, it turned out that uh, the Revolutionary Conservative Party... Communist Party. That was a Freudian slip, if ever I've heard one, that she was a core activist for 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 two decades, published a sort of defence of an IRA bombing in Warrington, which killed two children. And she has said that she's expressed sympathy for the family and that she supports the Good Friday Agreement, but she hasn't really apologised for that statement that was written in a newsletter of the parties um, after the attack. And that's really angered and, and understandably upset the father of one of the children that was killed in Warrington. But nevertheless, speaking to people who are running there against her, who are, you know, absolutely beside themselves that she she could be on track to represent the Northwest and that town, they just don't think that it's hit her reputation at all. And obviously, we speak a lot about how individual candidates, people aren't voting for individual candidates. But it is an example of how it's sort of water off a duck's back. You know, you'd think that the party would probably make her stand down from that position if she wasn't going to row back from those past views. And indeed, one of her fellow candidates in the region did resign because she was like, I can't stand for these elections by the side of this person if she's going to keep her views ambiguous. And so it just shows the sort of changing or eroding norms of our politics that people who 
hold views that are, are ultimately, you know, wrong for the regions where they're running in and, and outrageous to the general voter can carry on and their parties don't really censure them. And um, it's the same with someone like Carl Benjamin for, for UKIP, who, who won't apologise for his rape comments. It's also, I think the, the interesting kind of question I have about all of this is, was obviously the norm has eroded, but how much is it that the norm has been eroded by outside forces and how much is it that um, the idea in in the minds of of parties that they would be punished for this behavior i mean obviously ukip if the polls are right and i am not sure if they are but let's Mm. just assume that they are ukip probably have been punished for not getting carl benjamin to apologize because their vote appears to have been almost entirely slurped up by nigel farage's new party and of course, Farage's big argue, yeah, big tactical argument, both in how he ran UKIP and in the setting up of a new party, was that you couldn't have the success that the Brexit party looks like it may have, and then UKIP had in 2014. If you had the type of overt unpleasantness that uh, that UKIP in its present incarnation is is now offering, we do sort of know. Yeah, we have stress tested pretty comprehensively in the country now over the past four and a bit years that arguments about the IRA and the things they did are not a vote-moving issue. Yes, um, yes. The question I have, though, right, is, of course, you, you would have to be deeply partisanly motivated to believe that Farage had had anything like the level of scrutiny pay, placed on his decision to put Claire Fox at the top of the list as the Labour Party did over Jeremy Corbyn, John McDonnell and Diane Abbott's historic sympathy for the armed struggle uh, in Northern Ireland. Now, the reason why I think that's significant is I think one of the reasons why the Labour Party was able to shrug that off is that their their line on it, which was, you know, we talked to both sides to bring peace, which actually is not really true of, of the of the kind of intellectual lineage behind that support. The reason why so many people in the 1980s left were sympathetic to the IRAs, they saw it as a liberation struggle analogous to what the ANC and, and other movements were going through over the world. Not because they thought that you, not because their argument was, well, these are beastly people, we've got to talk to them to bring peace. However, because of the national story we tell as a country about Northern Ireland, when we bother to tell it at all, is we talked to some people who did some bad things, we all agreed to forgive and forget, and that's fine now, right? Is essentially the kind of the national story. And Corbyn's line on that fitted very well with the national story. So I, I do kind of wonder if you had the Brexit party facing the same barrage of questions about Claire Fox, I'm not convinced they would get away with it because her, her line on it is not part of the national story. She's not going, we talked to some bad people. She's saying, I defended a bomb which killed two children and I'm not willing to wholly disavow yeah. it now yeah uh, yeah she's saying that yeah she's yeah. saying i'm glad that we have peace now i support the good friday agreement yeah. um she says those though that newsletter was written so long ago and, and the, it's taken the brexit party itself to say she doesn't hold these views anymore but she hasn't actually said that herself although she has she has said she, she doesn't condone violence now yeah. i think you're absolutely right because when you look at the, her line on it now and le- versus Labour's line on on the people at the top of their party who who had those associations in the past, 
it is very different. It's more outrageous. It's not being picked apart as much as Labour would be. And that suggests that, yeah, she's getting away with it. I mean, in my piece, I wrote that it was water off a press officer's back. Yeah. Um, she's she's getting away with it. But And I was speaking to someone who is, you know, part of Labour up in that area. And they were making that distinction between how Jeremy Corbyn had spoken about his past associations and how she had. And they were saying, you know, this is something that someone would have to resign over in normal life. But she just hasn't had to yeah and I think that you're right with UKIP and actually over the years with UKIP they, they've always turned out these odd candidates who have said terrible things and they do make they did used to under Farage's party may, usually make them resign or they'd stand down because they were too right wing for UKIP that doesn't obviously happen in the current incarnation of UKIP but I do think that these fringe parties did used to get punished for the eccentric or offensive things that their their um, candidates had said Again, there are lots of reasons why I'm slightly sceptical, particularly of the Westminster voting intention polls, which, if you haven't seen them, suggest that the Brexit party would get 20%, Labour would get 27%, the Conservatives would be somewhere between those two figures, the Liberal Democrats would be on 15%, the various nationalist parties would, would do very well in their own arenas, and the Greens are doing fairly well, and Change UK are not so much. There are lots of reasons I'm dubious about those polls, but the main reason why I think even if they are correct, they will never play out in a general election is under first-past-the-post, and a lot of people, when these polls come out, keep doing this kind of, like, this weird, like, reflexive, hostile sneering to the Labour Party that I weirdly think has actually been the biggest gift to the Labour Party and the worst disbenefit to the smaller parties of the centre and left, of kind of going, oh, lol, lol, their equidistant strategy is working out just great, and so. Like, well, if those polls are happening, it's working brilliantly because they would win loads of seats under first past the post <laughs> if that was the voter distribution. The reason why I don't think that it will be played out is, and I'm actually really interested in what you think about this, having also gone around the country during the locals, is mm. it feels to me that if you are a Brexit Party voter, and the polls uh, also do suggest this, you dislike in the following order all three of these things. Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour Party, Theresa May's Brexit deal. Now... I don't believe that in a general election, when you know that thanks to our terrible electoral system, voting to protest the third of those means you end up with the first two of those things quite probably propped up or reliant on second referendum supporting parties or MPs. I don't buy that that 20% of Brexit party voters are going to have the effect that the polls suggest they do. For the same reason that we know that polls do influence how... A, they influence how things get covered, you know, the kind of huge focus on Ed Miliband propped up by the SNP, the fact that you know, that one of the many, many problems the Conservatives had, as well as their wretched campaign and poor candidate in 2017, was that they suffered asymmetrical protest voting. Mm-hmm. That there were people who, who you know, we, we all met them in various parts of the country who basically went, I don't like her very much, I don't want her to get a supermajority, so I'm going to vote Lib Dem. Whereas people who were Lib Dem inclined, but kind of Labour-facing, as it were, went... I see all these polls, I don't want the Labour Party to be crushed, and I don't want her to have a a big majority, so I'm going to vote for the other other big party. And I think in the same way that that dynamic played its way out to Labour's benefit last time, I just think, I simply don't believe that 20% of people would vote for the Brexit party, knowing that it would end up with a second referendum and a government led by a person and a party they don't like. 
Yeah, I mean, that sentiment is just so prevalent everywhere, even with people who aren't super enthusiastic about about, about the Brexit party specifically, or even Brexit itself. People are so fed, they, everyone says they're so fed up with the two main parties, they're as use, useless as each other. I know it's a cliche, but it's very true at the moment. I think that could hurt Labour, really. I don't think that making that calculation, because I, I do think that even though Labour did unexpectedly well in the last election, it gets such a bad press and it's so caught up in the Brexit mess. It's so divided. I don't think people will necessarily think Jeremy Corbyn could be the next Prime Minister, if you see what I mean. I know that there's more chance that people would think that off the back of the last election, but I still think people will be spooked by that prospect and that could damage Labour to the benefit of the smaller parties in a general election. Especially as, you know, there's so many elections. I think you... I think we all found this when we were going around the country ahead of the locals, but people would just sort of be like, which election? You know, oh, I, I want to vote for, I don't want to vote for either of the main parties. I'm going to vote for someone completely random this time. You know, I heard sentiments to that effect pretty much everywhere I went. I don't think that's going to go away after the European elections and we're going to return to the sort of two-party hegemony that we had in 2017. I think it's a trend and 2017 bucked that trend. Yeah, I mean, I think, it feels more likely than not to me than 2017 in terms of the popular vote was a bit weird. Mm. Not least because we've had, what, three elections since then, all of which would suggest it was a bit weird. Yeah. And however many elections before then then would suggest it was a bit weird. So all of the evidence so far is it was a bit weird in terms of the popular vote. But equally, if Labour get 28%, 27%, 25%, and the Conservatives get... 24%, 23%, 20%. We still have an electoral system which usually rewards that, right? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I guess, yeah, it, it feels to me that my underlying assumption is that the argument both the big parties will make to you is they'll go, look, this is an election in which basically we couldn't play our most effective card, which is it's us or the other lot. In a general election, that card is back in play and very, very much so. I think the reason why I think it could hurt Labour more is if the polls continue to suggest what they do at the moment, right? The message of those polls is if you're a Remainer and you want the Tories out, but you want to have a softer Brexit or a no Brexit compared to what is uh, on offer in terms of middle ground opinion within the, the Labour Party as an entity, then you can vote for a Remain party fairly safely. However, what the polls also say is if you are someone who wants a harder Brexit than the one on offer from the Conservative Party, it is not safe to vote against the Conservative Party. Yeah. Which is why I, I, I can also see how you end up with a situation in which the Conservatives are on 33, 31, 32, and Labour are on 25, 26, mm. which becomes painful for them in the opposite direction. It does, uh, yeah, I would be astonished unless we had no deal or some kind of, you know, severe recession caused by the, the, the you know, the blowback of the... US-China trade war, both of which are, of course, perfectly plausible outcomes. I, 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 my assumption is that whoever wins, in inverted commas, or maybe just not in inverted commas, the next election will do so with a significantly lower share of the vote than either of the big two last time. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to health care, it pays to be extra. 
And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. And now it's time for a section we like to call... You Ask Us. Thank you. And the kind of question, which I think we've got several variants of, is, you know, what's gone wrong for Change UK? Yes, no, I mean, with Change UK, the noises from that camp are very gloomy, aren't they? I mean, I'm sure sure you found that, Stephen. The idea that the Lib Dems are going to do much better than, than they realised, thinking that they were a spent force, is really hurting them. I mean, we saw today that the top of the candidates for in Scotland for Change UK has defected to the Liberal Demo- Democrats. And that's just, you know, one example of how people, how, how the party is suffering from that, that resurgence of the Lib Dems. Probably some listeners will remember that Tim Farron once compared the Lib Dems to cockroaches, and it was thought to be a hilarious quote at the time, but he's actually right, you know, they really do survive even after their version of electoral nuclear fallout. Yeah, change have obviously made many, many mistakes, more than I think we could list in the time afforded for this segment. But in lots of ways, I actually think their mistakes are semi-irrelevant to the big overarching mistake. And the kind of four pillars of that party's sort of founding argument are, were one, the Labour Party cannot be won, won back. Two, the Labour Party in its present form is morally unfit to govern, whether that is uh, anti-Semitism or its foreign policy positions. And obviously there are a variety of people within the, the breakaway group who would would feel more strongly about you know, one, one of those, those two aspects. Pillar three, the Conservative Party is, in the case of the founding breakaway MPs, still the Conservative Party ever was, i.e. something which has to be defeated, or in the case of some of the Conservatives who've joined it, the Conservative Party is an entity that has changed and therefore cannot form them. The problem is, right, is pillar four, which is the Liberal Democrats are incapable of filling that space and are doing sufficiently badly that they can't even get back to their pre-existing levels of of, of pre-coalition support. Now, the problem is, is that however you feel about the first three pillars, they don't matter if Pillar 4 is, is, is incorrect. And Pillar yeah. 4 is visibly incorrect because the Liberal Democrats gained 700 council seats. And everything else, right, you know, it, it's a bit like so a while ago, Arsenal were beaten 6-0 by Chelsea on my birthday. And at 2-0 down, Alex Chamberlain decided to handle the ball in the area, which meant that he was sent off, so he went down to 10. Now... Ultimately, there were individual errors made in the later goals. But if you've gone down to 10 men in the 20th minute or whatever embarrassingly early point in the game it was, things have gone catastrophically wrong for you. And it doesn't matter how bad your tactical decisions are after that point. It has got... You, you know, you've, you made, are, you've made the fatal yeah, decision. Yeah. The, and the fatal, yeah, the fatal moment is that even if right, they had not had terrible logo, you know, poor launch, you know, no seeming understanding of any of the challenges of being an insurgent party, etc., etc. Even if they hadn't done any of those things, they would still be going into these local elections 
basically having to argue the point that the reason why you should vote for them and not a party who they are only differentiated on by having a less ambitious target for when we should reach net zero carbon, the only argument they would have for not voting for the pro-European party with more councillors, more members, existing infrastructure, and therefore a much better chance of your vote electing an MEP is, we've had a great launch and a good logo. Even if they had not made the many mistakes they've made within their control, the central roadblock of 700 Lib Dem councillors is just a disaster. Yeah, I mean, what I find really interesting about Change UK and in general people who want to do politics differently and and they want to be um, an alternative for the politically homeless, you know, all of this stuff that we've been really hearing about for over two years now, is that they completely neglect and overlook the Lib Dems, even though that is the position that they've played in politics for a really long time before the coalition. They were that kind of nice protest vote space that people are desperate to fill and they just neglect them. I remember going to interview the Renew Party, which is now part of Change UK in some sort of way. And I said, how are your policies or how is your party different from running for the Lib Dems? And they couldn't give me any policies or any difference, really. They, they were just like, we're different because we haven't been in politics before, even though lots of them had run for previous parties. And I think that's the main part of it, because Change UK is made up of MPs who are used to being in big parties, getting that air time maybe being the sort of dissenting voice and so getting even more airtime and therefore they're running their party as if they're one of the big parties they're not appreciating that it's a specific skill to be the third party or to be the alternative and they've completely neglected that 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 that's an important skill to learn who could they have learned that from the Lib Dems why didn't they open up communication with the Lib Dems why did they completely cut them off and 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 ignore them when they did their launch it was frustrating for the Lib Dems at the time when they did that and now you know it's it's a bit late yeah I think the thing is I think as someone obviously I, I, I have given intellectual house room to the idea that uh, the Lib Dems might be finished by coalition I don't think it was necessarily the worst idea in the world it's yeah, it's something that several Liberal Democrats urged Tim Farron to do polling to yeah, basically find out what the extent of the damage was when he became leader but uh In terms of their aim to kill the Liberal Democrats, one of the ways to do that would have been to poach their staff and experienced Mm. veterans from the backroom operation. If they had done that, I'm not saying they would necessarily have succeeded in... Yeah, yeah, I think the the problem of the 700 seats would would have happened anyway. But then they wouldn't have this thing where, as you say, they kind of... They're still acting like a... It's not even that they started acting like a big party. They're still doing it now. I had a conversation with one of them where I, I, I didn't because I just kind of think, like, you know, ultimately, like... The point I am making is going to be proved correct in a really painful fashion for you on the 23rd of May. I don't need to <laughs> underline need to it now. <laughs> but um, yeah, one of the things I think they really haven't absorbed is that as unfair a whack as the Labour Party gets from most of the press, because they are a party which could plausibly enter down a street, there are, they are at least guaranteed the microphone. Mm. They might have you know, a correspondent arching their eyebrows while they do it, you know, and essentially the sound of fart noises from a large chunk of the press. But they've still got a microphone, and the Labour Party can at least get away with being a little bit robust in response. The thing which is maddening for almost all the third parties is that they have to deal with disinterest, contempt, and they still have to preface every request they make to people who have no reason to give them coverage with pleas. Mm. And, and again, that, but of course, to reiterate, It doesn't really matter, right? Because the Lib Dems gained 700 seats. Yeah. 
Ding Dong, The Witch is Dead, and by The Witch I mean the Jeremy Kyle show. In case you haven't been following, one of the guests to appear on it killed themselves after they appeared on the programme. The show was suspended and has now been permanently axed. In many ways, the weirdness of this is not it hasn't happened before. Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of close shaves. I've been doing some research into it, and it's been on for 14 years, and there's been a lot of people who have been sentenced, you know, for assault, who have appeared on the show and then gone back and assaulted their partner or intimidated their partner because of things that were revealed during the show. I say revealed with inverted commas because they use sort of these shonky lie detector tests, and they provide DNA tests if people are trying to work out whose children are whose. Um, And these are the kind of things they give people access to saying they're going to help them but actually it's for the drama and it's for the entertainment and so there's been quite a few examples of incidents after shows where the family breakdown has got even more extreme and so it was only a matter of time before something like this happened where someone has actually taken their their own life according to reports I mean that hasn't been confirmed yet but that's that's the story. I mean I think yeah that as you say there have been lots of kind of close shows and yeah I think so it's a useful moment to kind of consider it as a kind of cultural artifact Because as well as being, in many ways, the kind of peak of a certain type of reality television, I feel like it's the beginning or at least the most enduring example of the kind of like, let's find some freakish poor people, put them in a cage and make them dance genre of reality TV. Yeah, it's the most shameless version of that, even though that is an enduring genre of reality TV and is often dressed up as sort of social research or... Yeah, I mean, the genre is called poverty porn and that that's still prevalent on TV. So people still, you know, programme makers are still going around and cherry picking the most vulnerable or the most eccentric characters from an area and, and use them as, as, as representatives. But really they're trying to paint this picture of, you know, it, it sort of plays into politicians' hands or some politicians' hands really because it's trying to paint a picture of this this other class, you know, that, that we watch for our entertainment and that we're disgusted and entertained by who don't really exist. It's just, it's just that people are... are people's lives are edited in a way to make them seem outrageous and and chaotic. Obviously, one of the many, many things you've written about for us is, of course, about aftercare on Love Island, Mm. which is also similarly patchy. How much do you think what has happened with Jeremy Kyle is primarily about being at the extreme of that genre of poverty porn, you know, oh, you know, um, people, and, you know, kind of, you know, finding entertainment out of family breakdown, and how much do you think it is about the genre of reality tv kind of going we've extracted your minute of fame good luck with the rest of your life k thanks bye yeah which one does you think is the really important factor in terms of what's taken it off the air yeah it's a really good question i was actually thinking about this earlier today because according to most reports jeremy kyle had the sort of standard aftercare the standard basic aftercare that UK reality TV programmes provide their participants. They actually don't have to provide sort of psychological tests or anything. And, and, and Jeremy Kyle didn't do that, but they would have counselling and they would follow up with, with guests afterwards. But some said they received nothing afterwards. So, you know, it's sort of patchy and basic. And Jeremy Kyle is not alone for being like that. I mean, I've heard some horrible stories from people who've been on X Factor who have not had the help that, that they felt that they required after being catapulted to fame on the show and then just left with, with nothing after 
afterwards. Uh, you know, maybe it's a little bit unfair to criticise Jeremy Kyle alone for its aftercare practices, because as you mentioned, Love Island, lots of programmes have been under fire for their for their very basic form of trying to look after their participants' well-being after they've they've had their use for them and, and tossed them off the show. So I think really it is the genre that is the, the big villain here for Jeremy Kyle. It's just, it's very dated as well. I mean... There used to be this specific genre of noughties, late 90s TV that was that was very cruel and all about sort of pranks and it was kind of nasty and quite sometimes quite violent and dangerous and didn't really obviously have well-being at the heart of it and also exploited people's mental health issues in a way that is really not comfortable with with modern in modern Britain now when we know so much about so much more about mental health and people open up so much more about their conditions so I do think that the genre just doesn't fit for the time and then also there's the format which which makes it completely different in a way from programmes that have also been accused of poverty porn, like Benefit Street, for example, because this format has a studio audience. It has Jeremy Kyle as the ultimate sort of judge and jury, moralising and judging people for their life choices and obeying sort of crowd who, who are only there for the entertainment. And you know that they really reflect the audience at home. And I'm not saying that's a specific audience. Every, you know, it's the most watched on ITV daytime uh, show. So everyone's guilty of finding these kind of programmes compelling. But it's up to the producers not to feed that sort of quite nasty human human instinct for morbid fascination. Yeah, no, I agree. I think it's yeah, it's very much, and obviously they're not a public service broadcast, but it's very much an example of like there's always an excuse to give people the worst idea of themselves, right? Just as we could make more money by saying Brexit will be stopped tomorrow by Jeremy Corbyn winning a landslide. Yeah, but we don't think that those things are true, so we shouldn't say them. Thank you very much. We'll be back next week. You've been listening to the New States and Podcast with me, Stephen Bush, and Anusha Kellyan. It's recorded by me, unfortunately, while we search for a, a new editorial assistant, but it is rescued from crackly sound and bad levels by Nick Hilton. Our music is licensed under Creative Commons. If you've enjoyed the New States and Podcast, please do leave a review on your podcast provider of choice. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. There is this big space of ungoverned disorder where nothing is being done and we're just kind of holding up our hands and going, well, don't know what we could do. I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall Hall. And we're the hosts of Disorder, a brand new podcast from Goalhanger, where we'll be connecting the dots using our own experiences as well as talking to people at the forefront of global affairs. All seeking to work out. Why are the world powers no longer coordinating as they once did? The trouble is the United States, but also some European societies, are so divided. How did we get here? The modern version of the culture war in which 
The fight that matters is not the real one. It's about winning certain kinds of arguments online. What can we do to fix it? How do you repair disorder? It's by becoming a community. Search disorder wherever you get your podcasts.